everybody. Welcome back to Isra Talk, the podcast of Isra International Sound. We're on episode 12. Yes, we are. And today we have a guest. It's Thomas Cooper. Thomas Cooper. How you doing, Thomas? Well, thank you, guys. Thank That's you for great. having me. You mind if I introduce you a bit? Of course. All right. So Thomas is a co-founder, artistic director, and a violinist for Fermata Chamber Soloists. Fermata is a Boston-based nonprofit concertizing organization that seeks to reinvent the live concert experience. They aim to produce unconventional concerts that challenge what classical music can be in modern society. So um, I guess we'll start off. Could you tell us a bit about Fermata and, and what your organization does? Yeah, of course. So um, I was with a high school buddy back in like um, 2018, and we went to a celebrity series concert uh, with Pinka Zuckerman and Isaac Roman um, and Rohan Silla. And it, it was great. And, and we, we love concerts like that. But we, we both, uh, in the dinner after the concert, talked about some of the things that we didn't like, which we noticed had nothing to do with the musicians or the music. Hmm. Um, and that sort of uh, spawned this idea that um, the issues that seem to plague classical music in modern society, which you know generally have, have to do with um, numbers of audience members and, and, and funding and things like that, uh, we believe have very little to do with the performers or the music itself and much more to do with the culture surrounding music. So we uh, came up with this um, ever-changing idea uh, that um, sort of manifested itself as Fermata Chamber Solace, um, an artist roster organization that um, puts on concerts uh, throughout the season with um, anywhere from uh, 10 to 25 artists. Um, and we put on sort of unconventional concerts that um, sort of rather than approaching the changing of the culture of classical music from the outside, we try to approach it from within the concert experience itself. So that includes basically all of the above, anywhere from programming to venue location to actual concert order to length of concerts to what you wear to audience behavior um, and there nothing is off the table um, that said we we do believe that there's nothing wrong with the music itself so music still retains a um, sort of highly important role at fermata concerts and the way we look at it is um, sort of like a fermata the, the symbol in music that allows you to break um, the mathematically allotted value of a note, that rule um, for artistic expression, we, we believe that any rule is fair game for breaking. Any, any sort of cultural barrier, cultural rule is fair game for breaking. Um, and that's how Fermata came to be. And, and in fact, I, I didn't come up with the name. Um, one of our co-founders did. So it ended up being a nice, uh, a nice team and, and idea that's uh, turned into something much greater than I initially anticipated. That's such a clever name. Mm -hmm. I really have to say <laughs> just the idea that Fermata is, is, is one of the rules that you can use for notation in classical music, that you're using a rule to describe an organization that's kind of breaking the rules, but not trying to just break all of the rules, but it's very good name. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, artfully breaking the rules and, 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 
And I, we, we believe uh, that, again, no rules uh, off the table, but of course we still want to honor the music, you know? That's great. Do you have any yeah. questions? Not yet. Go ahead. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I'm I'm curious about uh, what are the current projects for the organization going on right now. So we actually just finished up um, a, a really large project, which was basically our our COVID project. So uh, when March 2020 came around, we had this giant concert canceled. We had a collaboration with Music for Food, um, where we were doing all of the Bach violin concertos with five violinists, um, including myself and one oboe player. Um, and we had, you know, hundreds of tickets sold and, and this great hall. And uh, we were partnering with this wonderful charity, Help Come Home. And then uh, it was canceled. And we said goodbye to that idea um, because it, at the time, it, there was no um, way we were able to put on that concert, at least in the immediate foreseeable future, you know, six months to a year. So we decided to, like everybody else, pivot to other ways of, of running our organization. Um, so for Mata, I realized that we didn't have a lot of recorded content online. We didn't have a lot of just recorded content in general. So we started this project called Black Virtuosity, which um, sort of it's, it's exactly as it sounds. It's about the, the virtuosity of Black artists within classical music. Um, and I am of the belief that um, there have always been great Black contributions to classical music. Um, and in, in, in many ways, I believe that the classical world was one of the worlds where Black artists might have been even more welcome um, than, than in other worlds. Um, I know that that might be an unpopular opinion right now, but um, I just look at the great virtuosos and in all instruments singing of the last 150 years. And I, I think it's, it's notable. Um, so we highlighted two composers in particular, uh, Chevalier de Saint-Georges and mm. um, Florence Price. Mm. Um, and then we added uh, Antonin Dvorak in there. Um, Largely because of uh, his contribution to um, sort of the American sound and his uh, written belief in the the music of of at the time slaves, mm. um, and we felt that it would be a nice pairing to have a composer that is so well known to composers that might not be well known. Of course, at the time, now both those composers are extremely well known. Mm. Um, and we thought that pairing would be great for something like Fermata. Um, so we recorded Florence Price's G major string quartet and that's available on YouTube. Um, mm. And that recording ended up being really successful and uh, we are very proud of it. And we had a wonderful engineer, um, mm. uh, Antonio Oliart from the Boston Symphony and from WGBH. And we used their studio to record the piece. Um, and then we recorded Dvorak's American Quartet. Um, and we actually just released that very, very recently. Um, the third part of the project, the uh, Violin Concertos of Chevalier de St. George's is still an ongoing piece of the project. And, and actually it will probably be ongoing for some time. Cool. Um, the first instance of it will be actually on May 8th where uh, I'm performing um, his Opus 5, number two, A Major Violin Concerto with Chamber Orchestra. And the other piece on the program is uh, Daniel Orson performing Stamets Viola Concerto. Nice. Um, and uh, 
that's fun because the last time I performed at, at Stamets Viola Concerto was with orchestra at Oberlin with Dan Orson conducting. Mm-hmm. So nice that. piece of, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, I'll be glad to hand the viola over to him this time and let him take the reins. Um, <laughs> and we have a great little Fermata Chamber Orchestra. Um, and that will, as I said, premiere on May 8th. Um, and we hope to get some some good content out of that as well. Great. That concert's in in Boston? That concert is actually uh, uh, going to be in the Cambridge area. Um, okay. Okay. So probably at a, a, a venue called um, University of Lutheran Church, which is uh, in Harvard Square. Sure. Okay. I was going to say, we would just put all the details for any listener that interested in the event that they can go check it out. And Oh, yeah. We can put some links down there. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, great. Can, yeah, um, anybody who's in the out. area can go. Yeah. Sunday, many... May 8th at 3 p.m. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. I don't know how many <laughs> listeners we have from Boston right now, but <laughs> <laughs> we can hope. Um, so you brought up Dan Orson. I, I have a question here. I was interested in asking you uh, how you staff your your members and your roster. What, what do you select for? Oh, uh, I know them and they're willing to do it. Nice. <laughs> um, there's really no method to my madness other than something that was important to me. I didn't, I didn't want to ever come across as excluding music schools around Boston. So I made a conscious effort to actually include artists from every single music school in the area. And actually we, we succeeded at that. We have musicians from New England Conservatory, Boston University, Boston Conservatory, and Longy School of Music, which are sort of the four major schools in the Boston area. Right. Um, and in our first season, we managed to include artists from all four. Nice. Um, and that was something I was very proud of because obviously I, I, I went to NEC. So there was a large contingent of NEC people just because they were the people I knew um, and people I was playing chamber music with at the time. But uh, we did get um, a pretty diverse group of uh, artists from around Boston. Hmm. Well, that's great. How how do you manage to find the time to be one of the artists in this organization, but also be responsible, your, your artistic director as well. How are you also managing to find the time to be responsible for organizing the concerts, finding venues, um, writing grants, coming up with funding? How, how do you balance all of this? And, and what does your workload look like? You know, uh, I, I wonder that myself. Um, <laughs> there, I, I told this Probably, I, I've probably mentioned this to you in the past, and I've mentioned it to many people in the sort of in, in the last six months. I would sometimes find myself um, being really proud of the administrative work that I was doing. You know, I, I, I would get write the grant, I'd win the grant, um, I'd get booked the venue, I'd get the audience in their chairs, I'd get great collaborative artists playing. Um, you know, everything's running smoothly, they're getting decent paychecks, and then I walk out on stage ready to play sit down in front of my part, usually some gargantuan first violin part. And I didn't really practice it. <laughs> and it, it really, it was kind of a, in a way it was a little bit of an existential problem. Um, you know, th- we obviously only have 24 hours in a day, yeah. eight of which should go towards your sleep. So it, it definitely was not easy. And I would say at times certain things took a fall. Um, sometimes I didn't sound the way I wanted to sound, or sometimes I sounded the way I would like to sound, but other aspects of the concert weren't great. Mm. Um, 
So recently, uh, Fermata has scaled back the number of concerts it does. Um, and we, we actually found a decent compromise. We, we divided our concerts into two types, flagship and pop-up. And the flagship concerts are sort of the larger ticketed events, like the one we had just this past Friday with the Schubert Cello Quintet. Mm. Um, and those are big concerts where um, I and the other members of the group have lots of sort of advanced warning of the parts and we come prepared to the first rehearsal and you know we, we all feel good about our artistic input. Um, mm. and, and that's contrasting with our first season where we put on 13 events and musicians usually didn't even know what we were playing until the week of. Yeah. Um, that sounds like college. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> it, 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 we, I, what did we do the first? We did, um, there was a, a week where we did Arensky two cellos, mm. uh, the quartet. And I felt really bad because I, the artists really uh, had, had no warning and they did a wonderful job in it. Mm. And to this day, it's definitely one of the more memorable concerts, but uh, we decided that the, the way to sort of have that informal um, feeling was to compromise. So we, the pop-up concerts are the less formal, but um, equally as intense and, and sort of gratifying uh, old school Fermata concerts, whereas the flagships are, the, are sort of the, the prepared for ticketed events. And the way we were able to sort of um, have the pop-up concerts still be art, ha, still have artistic integrity was to actually hire outside groups. Mm. So this might be a grad student group at NEC that's looking for a performance opportunity. Oh. And that way they can come in, do one super cool bang in concert um, and get, get some performance experiences they want. And there was even talk about having it be accredited experience at NEC. Because oh. your groups are required to do, I believe, three concerts. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an idea that actually gained some traction to have a Fermata concert count as credit towards those three concerts in a semester. Um, and then uh, we, you know, we can, I can show up to the concert and be the artistic director um, and, and make sure that all of the administrative portions of that concert are taken care of, audience and chairs, artists getting a good, a good payment. Um, and then, uh, at the flagship concerts, I can do the same thing, but have a little bit more time to prepare rather than taking on something like Souvenir to Florence with four days notice. Sure. Right. Uh, yeah. That... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we did that. Um, be tricky. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Uh, the, you know, even the best of us, I think, uh, you know, from from Yo-Yo Ma on down, I think uh, playing big parts with very little notice is always going to be scary. Yeah, right. for sure. For sure. Yeah. Unless you knew it before, but even then it's even then, it, yeah. you know, <laughs> Yeah. well, so for 13 events, your first year, but then also now you've got, uh, you've got your major flagship concerts and the smaller pop-ups. Um, how do you market this? How do you get people interested when you were talking about getting people in the seats? Um, I, I assume you're behind that as well, or, uh, tell me, tell me the story behind that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, good old fashioned advertising. Um, mm. 
we uh, in the last concert we spent about two hundred dollars on advertising, and we got a really nice full house. Um, That's great. And uh, yeah, of course, word of mouth and and artists. And I actually reached out for the last concert to the Boston String Academy Project Step and the Boston Music Project, and invited all of the staff, students, and teachers and parents um, mm. to join for free. Um, of course, young children going to a, a Friday night concert at seven thirty p.m not always the best but we did actually have some takers which is nice cool. and those young students real real troopers and, and listen the whole time and, and we're, we're excellent audience members um that's great but uh yeah we, we we tend to no form of advertising is off the table right so facebook instagram analog posters uh mm -hmm. word of mouth um the artists individual networks um yeah and also you know fermata has a very, very, very modest. So we do have some returning audience members from time to time. Okay. Um, and we try to keep track of them. Um, we also, one thing that we, we keep track of on, on a Google spreadsheet is we send out a survey after the concerts and we ask how many people were new to classical music. Oh. So we like to have the percentage of new audience members to classical music and not new. So that's, that's a very good idea. always helpful so that when we apply for grants, we actually have hard, hard data about mm -hmm. how we're doing in our mission of, of sort of bringing people to classical music. Wow. wow. That's really smart. That's very smart. That's very in-depth. And it's, it shows that you've got a very good sense and understanding of how to be running one of these organizations. And um, I, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what was your journey like getting to this point where honestly just from the outside looking at your group and organization and, and how you manage it but also how you work within it it's it's so impressive and the group is so unique um but it's, it's got your footprint all over it which is really cool but also obviously i'm not you know i'm not taking away the credit from anybody else that has also worked on the group as well but um Two things I should say. One, I always like, I could so tell that you'd be able to do something like this because of what you were doing at Oberlin. <laughs> Just even I remember you as like a 20 year old, 19, 20 year old, you were the type of person that liked to start things. I like, I remember I, I your Oberlin remember Freedom <laughs> Orchestra. I remember you and Dan Orson. You, Dan Orson too. He's it's no wonder he's a member of your group. He did the he did he taught his own classes, right? He taught his own classes, and believe it or not, <laughs> for about three years in Boston. Here, he started Jamaica Plain Chamber Music, which is wow. a town sort of uh, half suburb, half urban sprawl of Boston. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think it's it's my impression that you've always had the entrepreneurial gift, but. You were just mentioning that, you know, you feel like, how do, how do I even do all this? Um, it must have been challenging at first, but how did you grow into where you are now? Mm. What, were, what were the mistakes like? You know, what, where were the challenges? Oh, oh there, there were plenty. Um, but just to, to comment about sort of some of the other members of the team and how we grew, I owe so much to my co-founder, Nicholas Stewart. Sure. Um, he is a true entrepreneur and, and I, he actually started his own company called Recover Athletics, which is an app 
that's personalized and helps runners recover and pre-recover before their injury starts. Wow. And they're, uh, they have some, uh, super success that they will probably announce very soon. Mm. Um, and you know, uh, he is a real innovator and, and just sort of a, a cheerleader almost for all of us musicians. And just, um, he, he isn't a professional musician himself. He played violin in high school. Um, and he ended up going to, uh, Yale, um, and then didn't go to grad school and started at a company in Boston. And that's how we met up and sure. had the idea together. But, uh, it, without him, Fermata wouldn't have existed, um, for sure. He just, he is so dynamic and such a great leader, such a great public speaker, and just had a way with some of the early Fermata concerts that really just made them so special. Um, mm. And uh, we had some other great help on the team. Um, we had uh, Sophia Sokolai and uh, Delia Tarnish and Alex Fowler and um, Stephanie Chen for um, other individuals who had different roles at different times and definitely helped them. Um, Sophia Sokolai, who just played the concert last Friday, actually sort of was responsible and, and, and largely spearheaded our Toronto tour. Um, she's from Toronto, so she helped coordinate a lot of that. And that was a really big success and sort of got our word out in a way that otherwise wouldn't have happened. Um, and, uh, you, there, there's just so many people who, who helped, you know, um, we, I thank a lot of our donors and, and just, um, some of the early donors, uh, someone named Don Hannon, who just came to one of our concerts and he was, uh, very enthusiastic and friendly and, and believed in us. Um, and of course, uh, all, you know, Nick Stewart's folks and my folks and, uh, uh, in all of our families and, and their support. Now, when it comes to our mistakes, there, there's plenty. Um, <laughs> I think early on, we bit off way more than we could chew, right? Um, mm. 13 concerts in one season is actually huge. It's, it's in a way, that's almost the size of like a serious part-time professional orchestra. Yeah, it um, is. And it, it was fun. Um, it was exhausting. It was, um, it, it was eye-opening and in a way it, 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 the fact that we tried to do 13 was a mistake in and of itself. Um, cause some concerts were obviously going to be better than others. Uh, mm -hmm. and sort of the idea that we needed to do a lot of concerts was flawed in and of itself. And perhaps we should have instead tried to do a few concerts, but really good concerts, um, mm. maybe focus more on exactly what we want. Um, another um, mistake I think was, um, it was hard to tell at the time given our mission, um, but we did a, a lot of free concerts. In fact, our entire first season was all free concerts, which yeah. I, I do believe in the concept of a free concert. And I think it's an important aspect of an organization like ours, which is why our pop-up concerts have remained free. Mm -hmm. But there was a moment where we played a house concert where we had talked about charging for this house concert, but we ended up not. Okay. And, you know, it was a great time. We played Dvorak American um, and, you know, the audience was really enthusiastic and we were worried that had we charged a five or $10 cover, it would have um, 
been a barrier in the way of, of them coming for, for any number of reasons. Um, but then afterwards, when we all went out, uh, it was a crowded night and everyone was willing to drop $30 covers at a local bar. Mm. Um, and that's when I realized that, um, and, and actually I, I received this advice from Andrea Kalin, who's, uh, was at Oberlin and now is the president of NEC. Mm. Um, she said that if you don't charge, um, people, whether they know it or not, will inherently value your product less. Yeah. Um, and actually my, my father told me the same thing. Uh, and I've heard that now from many individuals and it's sort of counterintuitive. Um, but we are all willing to drop 10 bucks to go see the Avengers. We are all willing to drop even a hundred bucks to go see a sports game. Sometimes way, way, way more than that to do, um, things and go see events that traditionally speaking, people don't associate cultural barriers with those events. Mm So a Beyonce concert, do people think that there are cultural barriers at Beyonce concerts? Mm -hmm. Not really, but if you think about it, those are the biggest barriers because they oftentimes charge 500 bucks a seat. Um, and that's way more than any symphony orchestra in the country. Um, and it just, it, it made me realize that there, there is some hypocrisy with that thinking, um, that, $5 would be a cultural barrier. Um, And there are ways to charge and also serve communities that you want to serve, which, you know, um, you just have to be creative about it. Um, So that was one, I think, major mistake that we made initially, because, you know, trying to get people to donate mid-concert, you can make, and I, I, I think one of the best speeches I ever gave was a fundraising speech after boarding second quartet. Um, I talked about, I asked the first violinist how many lessons he's had in his life. He said it's probably upwards of, you know, six or 700. And I said, how many, how much are those lessons? He said, a hundred a lesson. I said, I turned to the audience and said, that's a lot of lessons. And I went on this big diatribe about funding for the arts and all this. And not a single person in the 40 person audience donated. Not a single person. And they all clapped at the end. They were extremely enthusiastic. We even passed around a hat. Nobody donated. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. Wow. Absolutely. It was dry. Yeah. And it, it, it taught me many things. It, it, it taught me that um, people are more willing to pay a ticket charge than you think mm. and less willing to donate. They, they, so they, they want to get they want they want something in return for their money and of course donations fulfill the same thing right you're you're yeah. you're donating something because you believe in that cause and that's yeah. that's part of what you're getting for that that sort of monetary value but um that was the second lesson i learned is that big impassioned speeches about donations sometimes they do it sometimes they don't mm. um one of the worst donation speeches i gave yielded 400 bucks cash Man. so it, it really, there's no saying what works. Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It, it's, you just, you just never know. Um, yeah. So those were some early mistakes. Uh, of course, there's all, you're going to make logistical mistakes every concert cycle, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Wrong venue, uh, wrong piece to play, wrong, mm-hmm. in some cases, wrong rehearsal process. You know, there's mm-hmm. always going to be those and they're learning experiences. You just touched on something that we we talk about amongst ourselves constantly all the time, that idea of what is the value of music 
and what is the value of a music performance? Because, you know, we're, we're in a very similar business. Now we started our own organization. Um, granted we're about three to five years behind you, but, <laughs> um, we talk all the time about how, just like you said, people have such a strange way of valuing the arts and what and the experiences that you can have or that you can gain from the arts, what that should cost. Um, because we're, you know, in, if I want this cup of coffee here, if I want to go to Starbucks and get that cup of coffee, um, I consume it when I'm there. So it's not like I get to keep it. It's not like I bought this iPhone for who knows how many hundred dollars, but you know, I get to keep that object. So it's worth my $800, let's say. Um, but you know, a Starbucks coffee that, well, that's gone when it's, but it's been paid for. I paid three, $4 for it. So you don't have to physically hold the object to justify paying for it. You don't have to have ownership over your coffee. Um, and yet a lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to hear a, a musician play. I'm, I'm not getting anything from that. So why should I have to pay for it? A lot of people are expecting free music now with YouTube and Spotify where you pay like, I don't even have the Spotify. I have the free Spotify, <laughs> um, for classical music. I, I buy it on iTunes. I, I try to yeah. make sure that I send money to whoever I'm listening to, but, um, yeah, we talk about this all the time. You must have some stuff to add too. Well, uh, I was going to ask you actually, when you were talking about that mistake that you had about how did you make that transition to like, you know, from free concert, of course, like you realize, okay, they're probably willing to pay the next concert, but how like, you know, realistically, how did you actually manage that to happen? Because if you did like a year of free concert, I assume like the next year, if you announce it's going to be like, you know, some ticket for the some concert, it must be hard for you to actually kind of tell your audiences, especially the one that attended the first year. Mm. Yeah, did they you have that have problem to expect it free. Right. Well, uh, actually, um, I think we had some help. So believe it or not, our first charged ticketed concert was uh this last friday oh wow um so we were doing free concerts all the way until the pandemic ah. and then we pivoted to recording projects mm -hmm. and i had known for a little while that i wanted to start charging for concerts but as you mm -hmm. said it's kind of hard to decide when you start charging right. um and then uh one of our team members put forth the legitimate in my opinion um issue that uh, in this flagship pop-up model where the flagships cost money and the pop-ups do not, you might run the risk of people viewing the pop-ups as uh, lesser quality than the flagships. Right. Um, yeah. And that it's therefore, in a sense, um, there's a little bit of a, a, a class association with one concert versus the other. Um, um, and it, these, are, these are legitimate questions and you have to be very mindful. Um, in terms of just how people perceived the paying for the ticket versus not paying for the ticket. I think there 
was enough time in between the two concerts due to the COVID pandemic that it, it wasn't on people's minds. And the concert audience that we that we got last Friday was largely people who were new to Fermata. Mm. So I, I don't think we ran the risk of, of sort of offending usual Fermata goers. Um, okay. Because uh, again, so many of our previous concerts were house concerts with the, the network of the host, right? Sure. Um, and this was a very different type of concert. Um, so in, in a way, maybe Fermata is sort of finding a little bit of a new identity or rather expanding our identity with yeah. different audiences. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, what what is classical music worth um, and, and what is music worth and, and what are people willing to play, pay for versus not willing to pay for? I actually think there's a couple of angles to approach that. Um, number one, recordings are wonderful and recording in the industry and what we've been able to do with the recording industry over the last hundred or so years has been amazing. You know, we get to document the greatest performers ever. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, if I want to listen to Oysterock, I can basically have hundreds of performances that he's given. Yeah. Um, but there's a double-edged a double sword in that, um, in that situation. And I, I think that as a, as a world, classical music is starting to reckon with the fact that recordings are sort of cannibalizing our own careers in a way and, and cannibalizing mm. the classical world. Um, sure. Fermata is a huge believer in live music, mm. which is why we have made the decision to not live stream any of our concerts. Ah, interesting. Because we believe that music is an experience and you can only get the full experience by being there in person with everybody around you experiencing the same thing. Um, yeah. And now, of course, uh, um, recording and recorded music is a different experience and it has value, it has so much value. Mm -hmm. um, which is why Fermata is doing recordings. But mm -hmm. in terms of our, our concert series, mm -hmm. that we want to remain a sacred thing where the only way to, to experience it is to just come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that in and of itself is extremely valuable. The fact that the only way someone can get the full Fermata experience is to just show up. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of enjoy when people ask, is this going to be live stream? Is this going to be recorded? And of course we record every concert because it, it's, you know, it's good to have content to post in, at different times. Sure. But I love being able to say, no, this is, this is something that you have to experience in person. Yeah. And all of a sudden experience, right. It, it, it's valuable because yeah. it's not, it's not unlimited, you know, um, yeah. mistakes and all they're, they're valuable. They're unique. Um, and they make the concert our own. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, in terms of, I also believe that classical music and classical musicians and that broad world of that huge umbrella we're talking about, that um, we, we in a way set our own value, right? Yeah. Um, when musicians finally start to say no to gigs, no to concerts, which don't value what we do, yeah, we will start to be taken more seriously. Um, Definitely. So that means don't play with groups that are underpaying for what you think it should be. And of course, 
that's a tough question because sometimes some groups have value in other ways, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. a group that has a social cause or, you know, music for food, none of the musicians get paid, but of course there's so much value in doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's also value in, I, I'm part of an orchestra called the Dubois orchestra. And for a long time, it was a, a non-paying group. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's value in, in their mission. So there's, there's value in organizations beyond just your paycheck. And, and sometimes in a way that the, the organizations that don't pay you at all might be the most valuable ones that exist. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it just, we, you know, in terms of um, just the general value of music and live music, we, the musicians are the ones who have to put their foot down and say, no, this is worth something. And if it's not something an audience wants to pay for, it's not something an audience will receive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a tough business because we go to school just like everybody else and we get a degree just like everybody else. So we pay a lot of money and invest <laughs> a lot in tuition and, and stuff like that. Um, but when you get out and you join the workforce, um, our business and our world looks a lot different. And another thing we talk about together all the time is just if you look at the average classical musician and look how hard they work, how hard we work and how much we practice and how tough it is on your head to balance the day to day and everything. And, and then look at the reward you get for that. And you look at any other, not any other, but many other normal, um, normal jobs, uh, effort to reward ratio, especially in terms of financial compensation. It's way off. Oh, and, it's so different. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, like, like you're saying, there are a lot of groups that are non-paid, but they have a very important role to play. And there's a difficulty in uh, when you're a member of those groups or, or when you are inside of them or you, you really intimately understand what they are, um, there's, there's not an issue, but when you're the average person on the outside of the music world and you see lots of those free concerts or donation concerts, or I've, I'm doing an undergrad recital and I'm doing a run through at this church so that I have a better, you know, performance in the Midwest, you know, um, people get used to that and, and they, they don't see being in that concert experience like you were talking about with fermata that ephemeral experience they don't value that and it's not that it's not valuable but maybe they haven't been there or maybe they've been in too many situations where it wasn't valuable or i mean i've had so many i've had so many times where people see my violin and they haven't even heard me play yet and they're talking to me like i'm dumb or in the airport people will like mention casually about you know having no job and no prospects and you live in your parents basement blah 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 but it's really funny how like when you play a little bit then lots of people come up to you like oh my gosh your eyes light up <laughs> you have right. changed my um, day and it's the 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 value is there people right. like it but there there is a disconnect there maybe the enjoyment's not there maybe Classical music, like your mission in general, maybe just the act of sitting in that crowd is not enjoyable. 
And so therefore, yeah, many don't do it. But there's a lot to unpack. And I wish I were smarter to explain well, why I, we're in the situation we're in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any one answer for something like this. Sure. Right? There's, you know, there's uh, hundreds of millions of consumers of classical music. And mm. um, I, I do genuinely believe classical music is on an uptake right now. There, there is sort of a a rebirth of interest in classical music as an art form and as a as a, a part of society and that's largely due to the internet right you know yeah. there's just you know a two-set violin and you know all of a sudden classical music is not quite pop culture but it's closer than it's ever been right now um, there are memes about it yeah right and, and yeah. It, we've never been this close to what you could call pop culture mm -hmm. but and, and we're still not there, uh, but I think we're, we are closer than we've ever been. And, you know, in terms of, you know, what's, what's worth money and what's just worth your enjoyment, right? Um, that's a really difficult question because you, you're rightly pointing out, you know, at a school like Oberlin, NEC, Juilliard, um, San Francisco Conservatory, Colburn, um, any, any of these great conservatories, right? You, you, all of the recitals are free, number one. Yeah. And number two, you start to get into this weird place where because there's so many good young players, you can walk into a piano recital at any of those schools and hear first-class musicianship and technical mastery for free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I no, guess it's not I'm, free. The player is paying for it. Exactly. And, <laughs> and maybe maybe we should start to ask the question, the bigger question of whether or not free music is helping or hindering. So, mm. you know, at a place like Oberlin, where it's largely just conservatory peers that show up to everyone's recital and your faculty members, mm. it, it's really not a problem, right? Oberlin is a bubble. Um, and it's a beautiful bubble because we had hundreds of people show up to our recitals and it was yeah. always great. Um, and you know, the, 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 small recitals where we were always surprised that so few people were attending, it was like 40, 45 people. Yeah. And then of course I went to NEC and there was like three people in someone's recital and I same was story at IU. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oberlin is a special place and we, and I don't think there's any, any place like it. Um, but at these schools in the cities, um, maybe there should start to be, you know, NEC Phil is free. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe we should start to ask the question of whether that should be the case, you know? Well, um, they don't have to chart. They don't have to take in money from the, the orchestra in order to be producing those concerts because the school right. is running on endowments, but also tuition. Exactly. And, yeah. and, but just from, in, in a way, maybe it, this merits a broader philosophical discussion, you know, mm -hmm. what, what should be free and what shouldn't be free. And, and. Of course, you know, again, there, there is merit in free music and free access to great music and, and mm. people and, and barriers. And there's there's so much to unpack here and discuss. And but I've also noticed that, you know, your, your average classical concert, even at the, the best of them with all the outreach that they did and they, they really tried their best you're still going to get your classic classical audience, you know, yeah. mm. it, it's, it's not like anyone's any major classical organization in any major city is pulling 
a crowd that's remarkably different from anywhere else. Mm. Right. It's not like your crowd. It's not like you would walk into a classical concert um, at Boston symphony and then go to LA Phil and then go to Chicago symphony and Cleveland orchestra or Philadelphia. You're going to see the same types of people. Yeah. Mm. This is not, you know, and, and I could, you could argue that um, for all of the organizations, this is remarkably the same. Um, so even the ones that try their best to change their audience a little bit, um, it's just, it's hard to do. It's hard to get people to show up to classical music who aren't already in love with classical music, you know? Yeah. Um, or involved with it already in some way. Right. You know, it, it, or people who were involved with it before or no longer, you know, high schoolers who, who might've been good enough to go to conservatory, but went into another career, but of course they love classical music. And those are potentially our, our most valuable individuals um, mm. because they love classical music and they know it and they understand it. And yeah. they were smart and didn't go into it <laughs> and, <laughs> and now have a, a big career that, you know, they, they become the future donors in, in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, it, it, this is why education is so important. This is why, the, I, in my opinion, the greatest change within our field does not lie necessarily in any place other than just the classroom, mm. you know, and the young children. Um, you know, they, they're the future of our industry and our audience and our donors. That's, that's where it matters the most, yeah. um, the education initiatives. Um, so, yeah. Wow. One of our goals, uh, Isara's goals as an organization, we, um, we want to offer a variety of different content, not just classical music in, in its, you know, classical presentation. Um, but one of our goals that, and we're still working on finalizing the, the quotations or, or whatever, but, um, we want it to be a sort of a tagline that we use to humanize the musician because one thing that I've noticed about the difference between classical music and pop music or any other type of entertainment that we consume, you, you mentioned the Avengers, um, you know, when you say Avengers, the first thing that pops into my head is like, Oh, Tony Stark, Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Man is so cool. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays him really well. He's a super funny guy, you know? And um, if you've got a Beyonce concert, you know, she's a star. A lot of people want to be her. They idolize her. They've got posters of her hanging up in the room and everything. And um, classical music doesn't have any of that. Classical, nobody has a poster of Itzhak. Well, maybe some people do. But not very many not people have much. like a, a poster. Very, no, I, I do think there definitely are Goldman. people like that, <laughs> yeah. but it's few and right. far between. Right. But also people don't, you know, Itzhak Perlman is going out there and Itzhak Perlman is playing somebody else's music on someone else's instrument. He didn't make it. He didn't write the thing. He didn't make the bow. He didn't come up with how the orchestra sits. The conductor didn't write the piece. Usually nowadays we have a lot more more interesting new music type of situations. But, you know, when you say classical music, that really usually to the norm, like a, a civilian outside of our world, 
that goes that spans from Mozart to like Tchaikovsky. That's kind of it. So um, there's not there's not a lot of a human element to it. There's not a lot of knowing even about that that window, knowing who Mozart was or Tchaikovsky was, or knowing about who new musicians are, or knowing even about the player who's there on the stage. I'd say the only thing we have that I can think of is maybe Ray Chen, who connects. Hey, he, he came to my people. mind too. Yeah, and yeah. Hilary Hahn does a little bit of it too. Um, and I think that's why those two are probably some of the most successful with the younger audiences. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think you touch upon a really, really, really important point. Um, when people go to a Beyonce concert, everybody knows who Beyonce is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When people go to a Coldplay concert, everyone knows about Coldplay. Um, mm -hmm. And even uh, sports games, when you go to, or at least back when I was, I consider, still consider him part of the team. When you go to a Red Sox game, everybody knows who Big Poppy is. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, he's no longer a Red Sox player, but he's always going to be a Red Sox player. Um, and that personal touch is really important. And I think classical music has severely underestimated the importance of that. Yeah. Um, classical music is a little bit like these days, um, a little bit like like figure skating or gymnastics, right? You 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 see someone go out, but of course it's it's even less because you know those those individuals make up their own routines. Mm. But you're seeing someone execute something, right? Yeah. And you're looking to see someone execute something well. Yeah. And you're looking to see their execution make you feel a certain way. Mm. And of course, there's a ton of value in that. Great execution, we love it. That that was Yasha Heifetz. Yasha Heifetz was famous because he could execute better than anyone else. Yeah. Um, but Paganini was not famous because of that. Paganini was famous because of the lore surrounding Paganini. Yeah. You know, List was famous because this dude with massive hands could do these things. And, and there was great there was hair. Like, right. And great <laughs> yeah. hair and a jawline that would make you could literally slice some bread on it, you know? Um, <laughs> and Rachmaninoff, the same thing. His hands were gargantuan. And yeah. um, I, I think that there's definitely the, the personal touches missing from classical music. And that's actually something that Fermata really cares about. So mm. before we play anything, we introduce our audience to the composer. Um, oh, great. One of our more successful concerts, our third concert, actually, we did Death in the Maiden. Um, and I talked about just grief, right? Everyone knows what grief is. Yeah. There's not a single person walking who, who hasn't experienced some form of grief. and um, then of course it's so much easier to connect to a piece when you know what it's about and of course schubert actually is a pretty easily uh you you can connect to schubert really easily on a personal level he, he's he's so everything he experienced is so relevant now um especially being a man who was not um going along with the norms of the times mm. in certain realms and that 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 really mattered back then and it really affected him. Um, and it was funny because, you know, the classical audience at that concert was probably one of the broiest audiences I've ever played for. They were all uh, jocks. They were drinking from a keg. 
Nice. Um, <laughs> they they arrived with their keg a little late, halfway through the first movement, and they were all a little stunned when they walked in and saw that this is the kind of party they showed up to. But they were all so into the slow movement. Yeah. They were all so moved by it. Some of them started crying. That's really know? cool. And it, it just, it reminded me again that the music isn't the problem. No. Um, and classical music up close is just as awesome as any kind of music that you go to. Um, and I think in part it mattered because, you know, somebody just had to walk them through the music a little bit. You know, we are so literate these days in pop music. Yeah. I'm not convinced that pop music is like easy music. I, I'm not convinced of that. I think it's actually just because we are way more literate with pop music than we are with other forms of music. Okay. Um, music, musical forms around the world, uh, sometimes are a little foreign to us right uh but they aren't foreign to the people who grow up there oh, yeah they understand that music really easily it just as so you know um if you i don't do you ever listen to hungarian folk music not authentic but the classical it's, music inspired right. by it yeah the the authentic stuff and i i only know this because my first teacher was he got his doctorate in hungarian folk music um, very cool it it's different mm. it's not it, it's it, actually it's it's a little odd to my ear when i first heard it i, I didn't understand it sure um, and i think that's probably largely the same with music from all around the world i mean mm. um like the when people first when when the gamelons first entered like mm. public consciousness i think it was a little i don't think everyone understood it when they first heard it um yeah and I think classical music to the modern audience can be similar, you know, it just takes a tiny bit of understanding. Mm. Some, some classical music takes more understanding than others. Obviously um, Ruth Crawford Seegers takes slightly more understanding than Mozart um, and Schoenberg a little more than yeah. Aldenoni. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, I think it can be learned, right. And, and, and it's a language. And if you learn the language, you can be moved by language. Yeah. First you need to learn the language. What about Thai classical? Hmm. Yeah. Thai classical. What about it? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, how would I say? It's it's kind of like the, the way that you mentioned, like, you know, the people grew up, they understand it a little better, but also at the same time, not necessary, because like, if you're not familiar with it, even though you're from there, but you're more into classical music or pop right. music mm. you have a hard time even like putting that together like what do you actually need to listen to like right. compared I mean, to someone who was like actually performing them so i think yeah. it's kind of the same thing it's like the language itself or like you know when the first time i show him the movie that has the thai music playing and he was like what is this tuning like i did not right get it at all yeah, it's the... so off and like the how the pentatonic tune is not exactly how like you know it's not the same as the, the western, same as the western what is it, temperament yeah. yeah yeah so he was like it's so out of tune yeah it'd be like kind of arabic or carnatic music but it's a totally different flavor and... right but now it doesn't yeah. sound weird to me anymore Right, because yeah. you get used to it. Mm, yeah. and you understand yeah, you, the you, 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 you learn the language, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are people, just to touch on your point of you can be from somewhere and not understand the music, that not every person growing up in Germany nowadays has an understanding of Bach. 
No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah. as not every person growing up in, you know, uh, Indonesia has an understanding of gamelan or Thailand has an understanding of Thai classical music or anywhere. Music is a language and and we learn it, which is why, you know, music has to be taught in school and different types of music have to be taught. It's not, there are people who believe that music is just sort of this like innate thing that all people understand. And on on some level, I do agree with that. Sure. um, But I think it's similar to a language. I mean, kids yeah. learn languages when they're really, 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 really young, when you're a baby. And I think mm-hmm. music is, is somewhat the same. Mm. Well, my favorite, my favorite period of my life in terms of how much I enjoyed music was probably when I started to think that I wanted to get serious with it. So maybe like 14 and then in, probably ends when I got to school. And so that, that'd be about four years, maybe 14 to 18. Um, and I think that that period of enjoyment was largely because of, I was intensely invested in it and experiencing it and getting it in my ears and feeling it and just becoming a part of it and allowing myself to grow alongside it. But then when you get introduced to music in a professional context, um, it becomes a little bit, just in my opinion, um, and I don't have a job anywhere, so I can get in trouble saying this, but it just becomes a little bit too much of a game of chess inside of a game of chess inside of a game of chess. You know, there's the game of chess is beautiful because there are rules, right? You can... You can only move a pawn a certain way. You can only move the knight in an L. You can only move the bishop diagonally and fitting within that set of rules, but then being as free as you want within those constraints. Um, that's what makes it beautiful. And that's what makes it make sense to us. You know, like um, if I say, Thomas, what do you want to eat later? But I don't uh, say what later right. is. Right, you're confused. You're like, right, eat later. <laughs> Do you mean later tonight? I, I'm, I could have been meaning a week later. I was thinking like, I don't know, for the rest of your life. You know, I just gave you a game where there were no rules, and so it's kind of confusing. You're just sitting there like, wait, what? Why would I? What's going on here? <laughs> and so, there's also an effect like that. I think when you show someone who's never heard of chess something as complicated as being a musician, enjoying classical music within the concert going etiquette. It's, it's like three or four different rule books that you have to have learned already. Right. So, you know, those bros showing up to your death in the maiden concert, they loved it because they didn't run into that barrier. But if you show up at the concert and you know, you clap at the wrong time, or you make a noise, or you cough, or you don't know why they're all sitting like that. You you don't know why someone does this. You don't know why someone does this. Um, it's it's almost like the game has been being played for no, it literally is like this. The game has been being played for two hundred years, and you are behind. Right. You know, and so 
that's why you see the same people showing up to classical concerts because new people show up. They probably try it so many times and see a game that they can never catch up to or they're surrounded by a bunch of other players or listeners or just concert promoters, um, anything, you name it. People who kind of, let's be honest, classical music has a problem where we, we like to act a little stuffy. And if somebody doesn't know the rules, a lot of people go like, oh, 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 he doesn't know what the opus number of Death of the Maid. By the way, I don't. <laughs> I think it's a, it's, a, it's a D number, right? Schubert is D, right? I only oh, no. know that because Schubert Cello Quintet is D956, and I just made that program. There we go. <laughs> so I remember, Mike, I was playing violin at my parents' house, and my cousin James was there and, with his wife, and um, I was playing Tchaikovsky Concerto. And he came over and was like, wow, that was so cool. You just played that so well. That was one of my favorites. And his wife was like, well, go on, tell him, tell him you know what it is. And he was like, that was uh, Peter Ehrlich Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto Number no. 1 in D major, Allegro Moderato. And I was like, wow, that was so stiff. I'm not, I'm not making fun of you, James. But, you know, like the classical music kids will just be like, oh, yeah, that was Tchaik. Yeah. <laughs> but then in a concert setting in an official setting we will be like and that was the first movement allegro moderato from the yeah. concerto in e major yeah Up next we have a thriller no and you know actually there's a there's a radio station around here which loves to tell you and that was on an emi compact disc ah because somehow that's information that music listeners care to know <laughs> the disc is about seven inches wide and... <laughs> yeah it, it, no you're touching upon a really important point it, it there's a disconnect between what musicians care about when listening to music and what what audiences seem to care about when listening to music mm -hmm. you know um i i don't know about you but at recitals especially at oberlin you love it when the crowd goes wild yeah and I remember my aunt, who has a real gift with whistling. Hmm. She can whistle really, really loudly. Um, if she were ever in an emergency situation, she'll, she would definitely whip that out, <laughs> save people. Um, and she said, hey, can I, can I, I wanted to ask you before, you know, before the time comes, is it okay to whistle? Hmm. And I turned to her and laughed and I said, please do. Yeah. You know, we, we love that. Sure. And of course... You know, a class, some classic concerts, it's like, you know, I know, right? <laughs> you know, the white gloves and, you know, you don't want to make too much of a fuss. And, you know, one thing I, I, I love when, you know, like if you're playing Brahms violin concerto, you know, that first movement's really freaking hard. Yeah. I would like an applause after that first movement. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> you know what? It's really hard. Yeah. And I would like to know that my work did not go in vain. And of course, you're not supposed to clap after the first movement, but why not? You know, mm, yeah. one thing I say for Mata concerts is the best rules for clapping is to follow the music, right? If the music ends sort of soft and inward and makes you want to think about things, mm. think. Mm. Don't clap. But you know what? If you want to clap, clap, right? Mm. Yeah. There's no rules, but it, the music will oftentimes guide you to what is the best approach 
to take in the art form. Hmm. And that's what should be the most important aspect of it. What is the best approach to take in the art form? And of course, the whole clapping in between movements thing is largely attributed to Mahler, right? His music, as my dad likes to say, it's it's almost like going to church, right? It's, mm, it's spiritual. Yeah. And not you don't clap in church. Um, and that's okay. And, and it's okay that we don't clap in, in the middle of Mahler, some, some Mahler symphonies, because mm. it almost makes sense, right? It, it, mm. it feels that way. But that doesn't mean that needs to be the way for, for every piece of classical music written over the last 400 years. Yeah. Each composer was different coming from wildly different countries, wildly different cultural backgrounds. You know, some of these countries were fighting wars with each other because they didn't like the right. other person's culture. Yeah. So like they shouldn't be all looped together into one sort of set of rules. Well, also remember that even like the great big granddaddies of classical music, like Beethoven at their premiere concerts, people were, you know, gambling. Exactly. And partying. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, if, I have a feeling that if Paganini did something crazy good, people would clap in the middle of that piece. Probably. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. totally makes sense because it's Paganini caprices and it's not a Paganini caprice is not a slow movement of a late Beethoven string quartet. Yeah. No. <laughs> if you want to clap after someone nails their tenths, clap. Yeah. <laughs> we, we did this thing at Fermata's where we have an encore artist and usually we'd make this kid named Yip Wai Chow play a Paganini caprice. Okay. And usually I would make him play Paganini number five. Um, and it was always really funny because people would sort of be like, wait, what <laughs> halfway through? And it was, it was the most amazing response because nobody knew that you could do that on a violin. Yeah. <laughs> and the beauty is any response to a Paganini Caprice is probably a good response. <laughs> yeah. 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 Any response other than like, Right. Any response other than, you know, a studio class <laughs> before an international competition. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Well, I was just thinking of a story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, my overall, my feelings, my frustrations at being inside the game of classical music can be summarized by two events. One at one of my schools, a professor saying that we have to breathe very loudly because if you don't, nobody can be together. So everybody at the beginnings of cues, you follow the section leaders and lots of, you know, breath cues and stuff. <laughs> and then in a different place, someone else in the middle of rehearsal who hadn't experienced that professor. So someone else in the middle of rehearsal turning around and telling me like, could you not breathe so loud? <laughs> and, and you know, like maybe I was breathing really loud, but you know, how are you ever right? I got yelled at at this place for breathing not loud. I got yelled at over here for breathing loud. A concert goer could be yelled at for enjoying the piece and going, you know, like, <laughs> right. It's, it's a I, little too high society. Yeah. I mean it, that I have a, a follow-up story, which ex is exactly the same as yours. Um, I was at a competition where I m didn't pass to the next round and um, I went, the judges were giving comments and one judge said, um, 
really the, the only thing that really stuck out to them that would have passed me to the next round was my Bach. And then I went up to the next judge and the next judge said, the only reason I didn't pass the next round because, because of my Bach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just goes to show you that there's the entirety of classical music, including how we play is subjective. Yeah, it is. And mm-hmm. the, the least subjective aspect of classical music, intonation, is also subjective. It is. exactly. Peter Slowick at Oberlin will always tell you his famous story of, I won't name the professor, but he was listening to juries with another professor and they disagreed fiercely about in the intonation of Bach mm, and, yeah. and how to configure that intonation. Yeah, um, yeah. So in a way, at some point as artists, I think we just have to shrug it off and just... No, you do. You know, whatever works, works. I mean, there's a violinist, Patricia Kopenjinskaya, who's super, super out there. Yeah. And not everyone agrees with everything she does, but you know what? I don't really think she cares. If she's ever in town, I'd go to see her, though. Oh, I, I went to see her, and it was... I, I, I didn't agree with everything she did, but it was like one of the most electrifying concerts I've ever been to. That's and what's fun about her. Like, you want to exactly. see what she's going to decide to do because right. you know and, and that she's not afraid. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just, it, it shows you that maybe at the end of the day, we should do what is most compelling for us. Yeah. And maybe we should trust our own teacher, which is our, the, our own most important teacher is ourselves. Right. Yeah. Um, and if we, if, if you like the way you sound, and, and you're being honest with yourself, right? That that's that's the clincher. You know, you mm-hmm. do have to be honest with yourself. Then chances are it, it's probably pretty good. Yeah. You know, we all have great ears. We all went to conservatory. We took oral skills. We listened to recordings on repeat. We know what we want. Mm, yeah. We just have to be honest with ourselves and do it, you know? Yeah. No, I totally agree because, you know, if everyone play exactly the same thing, like, what's the point? Yeah. And that's why right. you're already yeah. artist, you know, like if you play... Because everyone has their own decision. And like you said, we are all our own teacher. We teach ourselves to play a certain way that we like the best. And we, we really genuinely like how it was performed. I'm pretty sure it's going to touch someone's ears or heart in right. some way, you know. And yeah, and it's, it is hard because it is really subjective and you can't really just have everyone like agree on like, no one's ever going world... to fully agree exactly yeah. even though you're like your number one world famous artist that's going to be one person that doesn't like what you did exactly so. i mean every gitless is another one um i've had arguments with people over every gitless because i really like him yeah and some people think i have no taste for liking every gitless yasha hype it's like him yeah and and, and actually I don't care what people think about me liking every Gitless. I like him. I listen to him. I get enjoyment out of it and I'm moved by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who cares what anyone else thinks? And yeah. actually, I bet every Gitless would agree. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> that's important. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think probably that's why like live music is so important. You know, because you get to experience like even the same person, same piece, different day. You get different right. things. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, same. I mean, you could even say same person, same piece, same day, same room. Two audience members experience different exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. So that's why I think it's fascinating, like with classical music, and I think it's important to keep kind of pushing that. Yeah, I guess. So that you know, I know it's it's kind of hard to explain, of course, to a to the audience, because like he mentioned, when there's many rules that you have to catch up on. There's many things. Basically, like you also mentioned, like ice skating and gymnastic players. Like if you don't know what they're doing, any other sport, then you just turn the TV on. You have no idea what they're doing, and then they just get scored. And like, okay, this person got first. Like, how? Why? Mm. You have no idea, you know. And it just why didn't why didn't she win? She did more spins. <laughs> Look at her go! Hey, whoa! <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it, you know, um, it's an, another reason why. Again, at the end of the day, we are creating these rules for ourselves, and I think classical music has to be very careful whether or not we're cannibalizing our own industry and art form. You know, hmm. but it also kind of proves your point earlier, where you said that our most important place to work is is education, mm -hmm. right? Well, not teaching people all of the rules of the game. You know, we can get rid of some of the rules we don't like, but making teaching them, fall them the in language. Love. Yeah, yeah, making them fall in love with music that's so worthy of that love. Right. And mm -hmm. and just, you know, learning learning how to make the decision for themselves. Yeah. Because some people are making the decision for themselves, but they don't have all the information. Sure. And we should make sure that everyone has all the information first before they right. make the decision themselves over whether or not they like classical music. Yeah. I mean, like uh, a kid in living in downtown Chicago or a, a different kid living in downtown Bangkok or somebody from a rural town in Switzerland, you know, Beethoven 9 is about all of them. Right? Yeah. Isn't it? I think that's what Beethoven intended, at least. Mm -hmm. And a Mozart violin sonata is about all of them. And... It's it it's it doesn't have to just be, you know. I, I think you get where I'm I'm speaking yeah, so eloquently. And, <laughs> no, I I, I I agree with you. It, it's it's. Uh, I said in the speech the other day on Fermata, I said that, you know, different regions around the world gave gifts to the world, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes in the form of food. I mean, I, I am a huge fan of Indian food. And I know Indian food is not exactly food from India. There's a British influence, but it's a gift to the world, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I think that Western art music is also a gift to the world. Mm. And it, it truly is for everyone if they so choose. Um, just as uh, there are great gifts to the world from, from every single country. And, yeah. mm -hmm. and they're all important and they all everyone deserves to have access to all of them, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and classical music is one of those great gifts. Um, and uh, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, Jessie Montgomery's Rhapsody or her strum and, and Schubert's cello quintet and Mozart violin sonatas and Beethoven 9, I, I would love for everyone to make the decision for themselves whether or not it's the gift that they would like to receive hmm. and not have it be made for them because of awkward culture or awkward issues, pricing, or um, stuck up performances, stuck up concert halls, you know, 
I would love for the music to be the determining factor and not the culture surrounding the music. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, what are your goals for the future? Your goals for Fermata and uh, personally? So I, in the simplest of terms, I would love to make sure that playing music pays the rent. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a pretty lofty well, goal. And I don't, don't get too exotic here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would love to continue playing music and, you know, um, I think the last two years has told now taught us that that's that that's a lofty goal for everybody. Yeah. From Perlman on down. Um, because Perlman wasn't playing any concerts in March 2020. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wasn't playing any concerts in March 2020. Mm -hmm. We're basically the same. Yeah, we exactly. had the same careers. <laughs> we had the same exact careers. And uh I so that that a goal would just be to continue playing classical music. Um in terms of I, you know, I always want to get better at violin, you know. Mm -hmm. And whatever that looks like, I don't know. It'll, it'll look different every every month. Right. Sure. Um, you know, I, I used to, my freshman year and sophomore year of undergrad, I used to believe that the competitions were a really great way of, of determining whether or not you were good at violin. Mm -hmm. And now I know that's that's really just hogwash, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's a great way of getting better at violin, practicing mm. a lot. But then again, it's not actually the competition that's making you better. It's just the fact that you're practicing for the competition. That's yeah. Better. It's having um, the goal. It's having the goal. So, um, and then in terms of Fermata, um, I think now that I'm out of school and I have a little more time on my hands, I would like to figure out exactly what role Fermata should play in the rest of my career. Right. Okay. And there's so many, there's so many different things at hand, you know, my, my wife um, is not from the United States. So that's obviously going to throw a wrench in the mix of, of what Fermata ends up being, right? Um, I can't, if I don't end up living in the United States, I can't necessarily put on a, a, 12, season, a 12 show season, right? Mm. It would make much more sense to do a four show season so that I can travel back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what Fermata ends up being, and and I think, the only thing I would like it to end up being for sure is just artistically gratifying for, for everyone involved, right? Mm. Um, for the musicians, for the audience, for the composer, for the performers, um, and just making sure that um, whatever we're doing, we're, we're, we're doing ourselves justice, the audience justice and the composer's justice. Um, and then what, what was the final question? Oh, it was your goals for the future for Mata and personally. Personally, um, yeah, I, I actually, I know, I think I, I took that yeah, one first. Uh, you did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think some, some more tangible, like short term goals for Fermata would be I would love to uh, finish that project of the Bologna, the, the Chevalier de St. George's Violin Concertos. He wrote sure. 14 of them. We picked out four that I think are fantastic. And I'd love to get those recorded, you know? Mm. Um, and I would love to um, do a cycle of, of new music um, mm. or, you know, new, new music, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> you know, music that is by living composers, I think is a better, mm -hmm. better nomenclature. Um, and I would love to increase Fermata's uh, uh, annual budget, um, mm. you know, 
basic things like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, getting Fermata's name to be um, something even a little more known and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, uh, but known for the right reasons, not just to be for the sake of being known, um, but known so that we, our mission can, can be increased. Right. Yeah. Um, And I think in a way, the same for my own personal goals, you know, um, I would love to be able to do the things that I want to do. And there are certain things that help you along. Right. So of course, winning some big competition will help you in your goals. Mm -hmm. They give you money. They give you exposure. They give you people who are interested in listening to you play. Um, But you know, what also does that is um, making a really amazing recording yourself and disseminating it widely. Mm. And that takes about the same amount of practice and dedication. Mm. Um, and the beauty of that is, is at the end of the day, you walk away with something super tangible. You walk away with a recording of yourself that you're proud of. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you didn't win the competition, you walk away with certainly something, you walk away with a better musician than you were before. Mm. Um, but, or at least a, a, a more practiced musician, I should say. Um, and I, so I, I would love to, just have, have some more personal projects that I sort of dive into and, um, you know, maybe expand Fermata to different places. Mm. Um, that's, I think those are the sort of goals that I can think of. Cool. Well, we will look forward to seeing that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we're going to include as many links as, as you want. We can put some links in the description of recordings and videos that you've made. We'll put your website there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Great. Yeah. Um, I think we've got like 114 subscribers now, so that's not huge, but <laughs> actually, that's Ho- hopefully some people will. It's quite a lot, actually. Well, we have no live presence, so <laughs> right. No, well, you guys are are you're you're going for a very different portion of of well everything we just described. Well, we're actually we're not. We really do want to have a live presence, but we just haven't cracked into it at all yet it's well then it's so a future intimidating a future. it's a future yeah. portion <laughs> yeah but you know it's funny i i view the online presence as so intimidating then we should at least teach each other <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, maybe it's just because you know with the, at least with the live presence it's like oh if you make a mistake nobody will ever no you know knows. it's gone hey. <laughs> but if you make a mistake on the recording it's there forever that's true <laughs> that's what um sound engineering's for <laughs> right no that, that's that's why we uh we hired a good engineer to make it all go away <laughs> so i at the end of your bio you wrote some blurbs about um cooking and everything but also that you make a point to watch the lord of the rings once a year at least and to close out this great conversation, I would just wanted to talk about something a little lighter. And yeah, why? Why specifically Lord of the Rings? Why well, you if you don't watch it at least once a year, Frodo doesn't make it to Mordor. That's right. And Sauron wins. Uh. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess it, it's funny because Lord of the Rings played such a giant role in my life, you know? Um I remember the first time I saw it. I remember, the, the, I, I think I was, what, uh, came out in 2000 or 2001. Yeah, I, something something around there. I think it was Christmas 
2001. First movie might have been 1999. Oh, don't ask me. Yeah. I never watched it, it until like somewhere, a couple years ago. Somewhere around there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I was six or seven. Um, and I just, it, it, the world of it just struck me so much. And just, it, you know, you grow up with it. And some people, they grew up with Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Some people grew up with, um, I don't know. I guess Star Wars, the generation below us, I guess, and above us, <laughs> depending on which trilogy you're referring to. Um, True. And uh, for me, it was Lord of the Rings, and yeah. um, I just I, I think that there's a lot of lessons in the movie. I think it's 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 a great way to just relax into a, a world that's so different. Yeah. And, and, and just lose yourself in it a little bit and um for me I, my, the fa- the favorite moment of rewatching the trilogy is always the first 45 minutes of the first movie yeah mm. because and i think it, the books do this too but uh tolkien paints a pristine picture right oh, it, the shire, it's the shire right? yeah it's like it, you know they're drinking ale they're smoking weed they're eating they're just having a good time. I would. There are no worries. Those yeah, yeah, there are no worries, and yet at the same time, you can tell, in, especially in the book, that something's wrong. There's something off about the whole thing. Because and there of course, are never they make it no very worries. obvious in the movies, right? Yeah, there are no worries, and and um, you know, they they make it like there, there's there's this pristine place, but all of the forces on the outside are starting to like venture inward to that pristine place that's right and of course you know there was the whole concept of Tolkien going off to the war and Britain was you know removed from Europe which was considered this crazy you know militarized um war-torn place which in some ways it was kind of true and Britain was so separate from it Britain you know yes in World War One Britain did endure some minor home front damage but not to the extent of World War II, for sure. sure. Yeah, um, of course. But like Britain remained this pristine location in World War One. Yet so many people left Britain to have to go fight this war that yeah, they didn't really feel like it had anything to do with them, and it wasn't hurting their own home. Yeah. So, mm. and it, in a way, it's like Frodo having to go off and fight a war that's not even his. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's smart enough to realize that. The, the war could very quickly become his. Right. If, if he, he doesn't, doesn't it's going to come for the Shire. Right. Right. Um, and there's just, the, you know, the, the depth of character and the, the world building. and You know, it, it, when you grow up with it, it, it just it stays with you. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the memes. I mean, have you ever uh, looked oh. at memes crossing Pirates of the Caribbean? with lord of the rings with star wars the three-way meme it's amazing you got <laughs> like no you know it, the, the 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 entryway meme for that is a legolas saying they're taking the hobbits to tortuga <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and that's after that you just have to it's a great it's a great ride <laughs> i love how metaphorically deep the lord of the rings is because um watching it every year is it, it makes sense honestly because um kind of a a bit of the same feeling that i'm having when when i was talking about the beethoven symphonies um frodo is frodo but at the same time he is every happy-go-lucky no cares in the world person 
to have ever lived. You know, right. Like you can find that bit of yourself. I, I see myself in the me that was me when I was born to when I turned 11 or something, probably once I started being becoming aware of problems or any sort of negative emotion, um, you know, that that's what the Shire represents that carefree world right. of I'm hungry. And suddenly there's food here because your, your mom brings it to you and just all of that. But and then Sauron is also just, he's everything evil that has ever been and ever will be just right. perfectly put right there. And it, it makes, it's so important that he's not a physical being. Right. So it, important it, it, that he's just this concept, sort of like Voldemort too, like he who must not be named. He's not even right. around. For the first many books, I forget yeah. what it is. Voldemort actually isn't a physical form. He takes yeah. these various amorphous, you know, what is he? He's a Tom Riddle and and, mm -hmm. and Professor Quirrell. Quirrell, that's Quirrell. Right. Yeah, yeah. She came book, up with these yeah. names that are always double double meanings. Um, but yeah, you know, in in Lord of the Rings, I just I I love that. You know, the manifestation of of evil in something like a ring. You know, mm. um, and it just. It, it's it's so interesting you know anything in our life can become a ring yeah mm -hmm. um and of course the ring in lord of the rings represents all of evil you know at greed malice uh, pride all, all those sins and, and evil and, and and they managed to condense it and tolkien how he came up with a ring is just you know so cool <laughs> it, before that did anyone ever consider a ring like to be anything I, i've always wondered you know ring of power right a, a ring of power i suppose maybe there was some lore in european stories that did talk about powerful rings and people gaining the mm. power from their ring mm. but um it's it's just such a fascinating concept yeah, yeah. You know? it's like it's an object made of gold it's something that you would naturally desire it's something that mm. your attention would be drawn to but the, the coolest part for me about the ring is that it's sentient and has a will of its own right because it's Sauron's soul so like when you when you see someone they're not even touching it but it's just on the table and talking to them and they're just now they're suddenly starting to think like I could do so much and help the world so much with this thing right and you know that's showing you evil that's showing you like if it if it was like a pile of $10 billion and a person who had never had an evil thought in their life and they just looked at that and saw potential and power and they're like, oh, I could buy so many boats. <sighs> <laughs> right. It, it, yep. Actually, that's a good way of putting it. Imagine it's, if, you know, take the ring away and put a, a check for $10 yep. billion. And, and it, it, it awakens the evil in all of us. Right. And, and that's, that's the cool that's part the, about it. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. That's a, a really good point. The evil in all of us, right? Nobody's mm. nobody's immune, and Gandalf, Gandalf is smart enough. To, yeah, he's smart enough to realize that he's very not immune. Yeah, and that's that's so cool. And and the only one who manages to have, aside from Gandalf, to have the choice, but rejected is Aragorn. Mm. You know, outright because Frodo yeah. holds out the ring to him. And Aragorn sort of like does his like seduction stare. Yeah, the the yeah. ring rather sedu almost seduces him, but then he shuts Frodo's hand. And it's like that moment yeah. where, you know, Boromir and Aragorn, they're so similar, right? They're yeah. two powerful men. They're both great warriors. They, they, um, 
they both swore to protect Frodo, but they diverge at the yeah, end. And, and Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo, and then Aragorn decides that he 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 sees he he's able to have the self control to to not do it and send Frodo away because he realizes that if Frodo doesn't go away, the same thing's going to happen to him yeah. that happened to mm-hmm. Boromir. That's right. And it's just it's it's in a way it's like it's it's not that evil is it's not it's not like there are better people mm-hmm. it's just there are people who who know themselves mm. enough to reject the evil in a way yeah right. um at the right time and I, I there's just so much in it that you know you could you could take apart every single moment of the film yeah in a way True. But, you know um even the, the even the two towers which is largely considered to be like the dud if there's such a thing as a dud in the trilogy like there's the no towers, i guess yeah <laughs> there is no perfect. dud they're all perfect and, and the two towers is like the one that i guess like if you had like for me my favorite is the first one um mm. but it's usually first and third right yeah um but of course if, it's hard to exclude helm's deep battle scene you know? it's so cool yeah yeah i mean that that's that's to this day i think the greatest medieval fight scene mm. ever mm. um mm. and even even in the two towers, even in 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 every moment, there you know, even in the battle scenes, you see you see things that just like the fact that um, uh, Peter Jackson decided to do extras and makeup and and costuming yeah. over CGI, yeah. which is the reason these movies look the same as they did yeah. twenty years ago. They with hold the exception up so of well. like right that there's you can actually count the scenes on one hand that that didn't that you can tell that the cgi is is there there's a scene in moria yeah. where the, the the roof drops and you can tell that that's oh, CGI. Yeah, yeah. yeah and but at so many other places they just you know like the battle scene between aragorn and lurks at the end of the first movie mm, yeah that looks the exact same as it did 20 years ago that's true because it's a human being behind it that. aged so well and the sets are not sets it's just it's helicopters just, galore right it's, <laughs> it's amazing that they they just decided that they were going to do it right they didn't yeah. cut any corners they didn't For use sure. the computer and maybe that's a product of the time right there weren't the cgi was not that great because you look at the hobbit and it's like a whole different story yeah um, so that's my favorite era of movies the late 90s 2000 to oh, 2010 dude it had everything it had titanic had gladiator yeah had deep impact you know, you got Morgan Freeman and and yeah. Denzel doing Glory and, and oh all yeah, the, you know you got you got everything in that era. <laughs> <laughs> when was Schindler's List made? Ooh, earlier, right? Earlier, I think. A little earlier. Was yeah. It? I have no idea. Liam is pretty young there. Um, mm. When was Taken done? That, that, that... I don't know Taken off the top of my head. I definitely must have watched it. What is that one about again? Uh, Liam Neeson's daughter gets taken and he's right. like set of skills, right? Oh yeah. No, he's, his name is Qui-Gon Jinn, dude. Yeah. That's the only, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only, <laughs> because I was like seven or something when I saw. Right. Yeah. Star well, Wars Qui-Gon, episode exactly. One. That, that one's considered to be a dud, but I, I, whenever I watch it, I'm seven again. It's amazing. And and that's you know that that's also an important fact you know I I grew up with Lord of the Rings so I love it and yeah Star Wars you know the first Star Wars I knew was not the old ones it was the new ones yeah and you know the the what you grow up with ends up being your 
your favorite. It's like my mom with her movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? Sure, yeah. She thinks that cinema is just a big decline since then. <laughs> That's because she grew up then. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I think our big task is to make our listeners feel the way about our music as we do about our music, but also as we're talking right now about movies. You exactly. Know? And to anybody listening right now about who who is not a classical musician and, and doesn't have a, an intimate understanding of it, um, just know how if you were along going along with that Lord of the Rings conversation and, and going like, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. No, no, I disagree. Fellowship sucks. Oh, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> that that's how all three of us feel about music and probably even more. Right right probably even more intensely so i think i would i would really like if we could find a way to spread that love yeah i would be so happy yeah and i think you're doing a great job you and fermata thank you yeah no we're 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 trying to fight the good fight you know of course and just so you know your our group is like 90% 90% plagiarized from yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, hey, you know, that means we were successful, at least in mm. some part. That's right. right. Yeah, it's been a huge inspiration. And uh, even if we diverge a bit and start doing things differently or start covering different frontiers, you know, that's that's just, that's a strength because then, you know, you cover the ice skating, we'll cover the the skiing or the luge or whatever. But exactly everything can be spread out and then maybe some parts of our organization can branch off and do something different even if you end up even if you end up covering the same you know Mm. this mission is not just one organization this mission needs to be in my opinion it needs to be all of us right yeah and and it's a big world there's plenty of room there's plenty Mm of venues plenty of audience members potential audience members and it just, you know, this mission is is more important than just any one organization, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been, I guess, operating for almost a year. Mm-hmm. And you've been, you were formed in 2017, correct? Uh, uh, the turn. So late 2017, early 2018. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I'll count the COVID years. So you're about three, four, five years ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So, well, if if we're as successful as you and your organization are in in that long i'll be very happy and uh i wish you a lot of success for the future and i don't think you need my wishes because it's probably going to come very quick and it's going to ramp up because i can see you're doing great things and you've got an amazing head on your shoulders so well thank you so much and uh doing great i i wish the same benediction if you will for uh for uh, Isara, and I, I hope uh, it, it seems like you guys are already sort of having your own unique take and and doing cool things, and and you have some pretty stellar recordings up already. Yeah, um, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you guys have good good stuff, um, and you have a hundred and how many how many subscribers? Hundred fourteen. Nice. I mean, dude, yeah. Fermata has twenty seven. So <laughs> great. Go yeah. subscribe Fermata channel, people. I'm two of those. Yeah. I just I subscribed with my own, and then I subscribed with Isara too. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> the double team. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, 
all of our listeners uh go check out Fermata and subscribe to them on youtube but also check out their website and stuff and yeah get involved they're very cool and uh yeah yeah thank you for joining us thank you for having me yeah it's been a huge pleasure all right likewise yeah. all right thank you everyone for watching and we'll hope to see you very soon for the next episode yeah, and please like this video. Please subscribe to us if you haven't already, and go subscribe to Fermata too. I think I already said that. Um. If you have any <laughs> other question you would like to ask Thomas or anything, just leave us the comment below here, and yeah, we will ask him. And yeah, excellent. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank All you. Right. Bye. Bye, everybody.